0: Welcome to Helix Talk, a podcast presented by the Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast is produced by pharmacy faculty to supplement study material and provide relevant drug and professional topics. We're hoping that our real-life clinical pearls and discussions will help you stay up-to-date and improve your pharmacy knowledge. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show.
1: Welcome to Helix Talk, Episode 13. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann.
0: I'm Dr. Hartranft. And I'm Dr. Patel.
1: And we're very excited to have Dr. Hartranft with us today. And we'll be talking about the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology 2013 Obesity Guidelines, but focusing a lot on three FDA-approved medications for obesity management.
0: So these guidelines were published uh, along with the dyslipidemia management guidelines uh, back in December last year. And um, getting started, just a brief overview. The screening recommendation obviously are making sure we are checking patients' height and weight and calculating BMIs, at least annual visits, and also doing the same with the weight circumference, unless they are on uh, medication such as atypical antipsychotics for which we have to do additional monitoring.
1: One thing I liked about the guidelines, there were a few things I didn't like, but one of the things I liked was that they really coalesced all the data with regards to the importance of weight management and what impact that has clinically on a variety of different endpoints. And I think that having that in one document, kind of almost as a review of why it's important to lose weight, is one thing that they did
0: really well. And to get started with that, what you were just saying, Dr. Kane, is um, the guideline says if the patient maintains a sustained weight loss of about 3 to 5%, we can see the clinical results, um, meaningful results, and while looking at reductions in triglycerides, blood glucose, hemoglobin A1c um, which are also or patients who are at pre-diabetes or at, uh, at risk of developing diabetes.
1: What we found in the guidelines is they provide a reasonable recommendation for what is a reasonable goal for a patient's weight loss and they say 10% of body weight over a six-month time period. So if you're 200 pounds that means uh, a reasonable goal over a six-month period is 20 pounds, which I think having some reasonable goal is going to be much more effective than telling a patient that they need to go get close to their ideal body weight, for example, which is probably an unreasonable goal for an overweight patient.
0: And, you know, like you said, it's expanded over six um, months of time, and not all the patients would stick to this resolution or goal for six months of time. So what those guidelines are also recommending is counseling, um, which includes lifestyle interventions, behavior. Behavior modifications with the counselor for patients who are you know, going to be on such therapies or weight loss planning for more than six months.
1: So, Dr. Hartran, were there any uh, dietary recommendations in the guidelines that struck you as more pertinent for from a patient counseling standpoint or something that you'd heard about that you thought was interesting?
2: Absolutely. You know, reading through the guidelines, I was impressed as you were. I think that the guidelines were pretty specific, that they gave us good, solid recommendations. Um, in terms of calorie restriction, when we talked to patients about cutting back, um, it's important we counsel them on cutting back appropriately, and not going on a very low-calorie diet, but rather for men targeting somewhere around 1,500 to 1,800 calories per day, and for women a little bit less, maybe 1,200 to 1,500. Or, you know, alternatively, having them look at their diet for about a week or so, see where they're at, and then cut anywhere from 500 to 1,000 calories from their daily total um, so I thought that was very helpful. It's interesting to note that when you read through the literature, there's not really one particular diet or strategy that comes across as the absolute best. Even I'm pretty sure the
1: Atkins diet's the best, but continue.
2: <laughs> you know, everybody's got their favorites, and I think as pharmacists, being so out there in front of patients, we're constantly being asked these questions mm-hmm. about what can I or can't I eat, what diet is the absolute best. And I tell everybody, the absolute best diet is the one that you can stick with and that works for you and you can maintain because the Atkins diet might work for, you know, your average caveman who really loves his meat, uh, but some people will miss their carbohydrates. And so we need to talk to them about other diet strategies and consuming a variety of healthy foods that are high in fiber, high in nutrition, and just eating a balanced diet.
0: So obviously we're going to talk about the medication in just a little bit, but you know if the patients don't do well on the medications or they fail the medications, or if their BMI is exceeding the use of or the limit of you know medication use, then they progress to having uh, bariatric surgery. So the guidelines recommend that if the patient's BMI is greater than equal to 40, or even patients BMI is greater than equal to 35 plus um, have one of the obesity-related comorbid conditions, who are motivated to lose weight and you know have not responded with the lifestyle intervention behavioral modification therapy uh, with or without the pharmacotherapy we can go ahead and consider the bariatric surgery so i think that's
1: important to think about all of the different criteria that the guidelines laid out of who is an appropriate candidate for bariatric surgery it's a motivated patient who meets certain bmi guidelines with or without some of the uh, obesity-related comorbidities who has failed normal therapy. So this is not the first or second line therapy. This is someone who's actively been trying to lose weight, is very motivated to lose weight, as opposed to the, the quick one-off, well, let's just do the, the lap band procedure and we're done, right?
0: Correct. And a lot of those time patients do come and ask me, what, you know, diabetes patients that say, can I just go with the surgery and, you know, be off of the medications and lose all the weight? and like they think that it's it's gonna happen in two weeks or the time Mm. period and it's not realistic so I had to sit down with them and say, you know, no, you have to consider all the other aspects before you can be progressed to um, an option of bariatric surgery.
3: And I think part of that is because with the nature of the surgery itself, there's a fair amount of compliance that is intensive in it in terms of modifying, you know, diet that's going to naturally occur due to the consequences of having maybe a reduced stomach volume, for example, and as well as some adjustments of even medications and further you may see changes in your existing regimen. So if somebody thinks that that's just going to be a one and done type of approach, they're going mistaken. So Dr. Hartranft,
1: I know that when these guidelines were published, they may have been overshadowed a little bit by the lipid guidelines that were published concurrently. So I Many of our listeners probably haven't heard of these new guidelines, but, you know, I bet that they're very excited to hear about all of the pharmacotherapy guidelines and recommendations that were built into these guidelines, right?
2: Right. Uh, Dr. Kane, you make a great point. It was kind of interesting the way these guidelines got overshadowed, but I will say obesity and obesity medications have really been in the news a lot over the last couple of years. In 2012, we had not one but two obesity-related medications approved by the FDA. And they were the first medications in 13 years that we'd had approved for this indication. So it was pretty big news. Um, the drugs we have on the market right now, there's three of them that are indicated for long-term weight loss. And that's Orlistat, which has been on the market for a little while under the brand names Ally and Zenical. Uh The new ones are Lorcaserin, Belvique, and Phentermine topiramate, which is the brand name Qsimia.
0: And so much talking about the excitement of these new guidelines. We were hoping that the guidelines would review these medications and include recommendations as part of their pharmacotherapy intervention recommendation. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. So what they did is they stuck to expert opinion. And those are really general recommendation to consider pharmacotherapy in patients who have BMI of greater than 30 or BMI of greater than equal to 27 with at least one obesity-related comorbid condition. And we've been saying whole lot, obesity-related comorbid condition, what we're talking about is hyperlipidemia, uh, metabolic syndrome, or um, diabetes itself. Uh, you also have to make sure that patients are again motivated to lose weight, not just you know relying on the pill to lose weight. Also have to make sure that they are seeing one of those behavior um, interventionalists to continue their lifestyle uh, modifications throughout the therapy. And also have to make sure those medications are FDA approved. So that kind of rules out all the over-the-counter advertisement and infomercials that people have seen on TV. So off the bat, you want to make sure that you debunk that, meat, that myth that you're not going to be able to use those. Agents because they're not FDA approved. And last but last not the least, that um, recommendation is that the provider who initiate the treatment is well versed in the therapy uh, and that they understand the potential risk versus benefit and then choose the patients accordingly.
1: So in thinking about the pharmacotherapy, generally in my opinion, the guidelines were a bit silent in terms of preferring one therapy over the other or even providing a risk-benefit analysis of one medication over the other. And truly their recommendation is what is on the FD. FDA labeling for the indication, which is BMI greater than 30 or BMI greater than 27 with an obesity-related comorbidity. So they're really just recommending that you evaluate the appropriate use in those patient populations for pharmacotherapy. So kind of moving on to the pharmacotherapy, I think there's a few common themes that are present with all three of the medications. Probably the easiest, most obvious one should be pregnancy category X. So pregnant women should not be taking pharmacotherapy uh, to induce weight loss. Some of our medications do have fetal harm, but the idea of causing weight loss during pregnancy is probably a bad idea in the first place. And then the other common theme is the indication. So all of these medications are FDA approved in the same patient group which is the BMI greater than 30 or greater than 27 with a comorbidity like diabetes, lip, hyperlipidemia, or hypertension.
3: And I think within the class, when I look at these medications, they seem to fall within one of three classes. And with, with any kind of weight loss, even the over-the- counter ones, you have those medications that decrease the appetite, those that decrease fat absorption, as well as those that increase thermogenesis. So I believe the first one on our list is going to be Lorca or Belviq, And this is one of these that falls in the category of, of adjusting your appetite. So this, medication is a schedule 4 medication and that's going to be something we'll we'll touch on in terms of potential side effects but again that's also going to limit its access and the mechanism being as it's, it works on serotonin receptors, it ends up being something that I perk up at being a psychiatric pharmacist. So this medication though, unlike most of the ones that I work with, this one actually activates serotonin at its 5-HT2C receptors. The end result of this is that it results in satiety and decreases the overall food intake. So short, short story of it, makes you feel more full So this medication is approved. Again, as Dr. Kane mentioned, we have very set criteria of approval, and they're all going to have the same wording as an adjunct to reduce calorie diet and physical activity. No one of these medications is going to exist in a vacuum where you're sitting back and eating whatever you want and not exercising. So we
1: are going to discuss some of the efficacy of these agents, and I want to caution the listener that these aren't comparable data. So trial A with Belvik should not be compared in terms of total amount of weight loss to another agent because the patient populations could be very different. So it's an apples and oranges thing.
0: And with the different mechanism of action as we would see as we progress through the podcast is that maybe then in that case if patient fails one of the medication you know you can definitely go ahead and try the different medication too. However they should not be failing on their efforts for diet and exercise modification.
1: So Dr. Patel can you give me an idea of the clinical efficacy of lorcaserin or BELVIC, that we saw in some of its clinical trials?
0: Sure. So this medication was approved based on three different trials. We have the BLOOM and the BLOSSOM trial, which was done in your regular patient population against the placebo. And then we have the BLOOM Diabetes trial, which is BLOOM-DM, that was done in patients who had baseline uh, no, A1C of about 7 to 10% who were on formin and sulfonylurea. Um, talking about this BLOOM-DM dial, uh, DM. Trial, Again, there was with lococerin against the placebo. Similar endpoints uh, were used um, looking at, you know, total weight loss. Um, mean weight loss, 5% and 10% weight loss. And what we found is that patients in blococerin group, obviously, were more likely to achieve that 5% weight loss, greater than 5% weight loss. They also achieved lower A1C, so the goal is less than seven. So more patients in lococerin group were able to achieve that. What happened, however, we noticed more hypoglycemia associated uh, and uh, Lorcaserin group, and that's because patients are continually losing weight, um, and so the hypoglycemia resulted because of that. But good thing about this trial was that the hypoglycemia uh, was not severe, in using coma, requiring hospitalization, or anything like that.
1: And that makes sense, right? So your insulin resistance is going to diminish as your body weight decreases. And the FDA noticed this, and it's I think uh, a good thing that they ran a trial only for diabetics, and they created a warning in the packaging that says, "Hey." If you're a diabetic, watch your sugar. You probably will eventually need lower doses if you are successful in your weight loss.
0: Absolutely, and it's a good thing because we can back up on the anti-diabetic medication. Exactly. Completing the evidence from Blue and Blossom trial, again, there was, again, uh, lococerine against the placebo. We were looking at one year weight loss, you know, uh, and then we're also looking at patients who were most likely to lose 5% or 10% weight loss versus the placebo. So what the trial found out, patients in lococerine group, lost on uh, average 5.8 kilogram of weight versus patients in placebo group lost about 2.5 kilogram of weight so there was still a little bit of placebo effect again because these patients were very in a controlled environment monitored for lifestyle interventions and etc and that kind of leads to a question of external validity how applicable the results are of this child into your actual patient population
1: right so in the trial because placebo lost weight and thinking about what was the actual effect of the drug, it was 3.3 kilograms or about seven pounds. And again, thinking about that external validity, so in the trial, it's going to be very regimented in the sense of you have to do this exercise, or we recommend that you do this exercise. We're going to have someone counsel you on your diet, things like that. Whereas in real world, it's probably more likely going to be, oh, you want to lose weight? Here's a prescription. Good luck to you. Um, And I think that that's an issue that the guidelines address saying, you know, um, having the counseling is important, but if you can't achieve that amount of counseling, you probably aren't going to see the same benefit as what you saw in these trials.
2: Great. And I think that links into some of the monitoring that we see built into the patient labeling on this drug, and that is... For patients who reach 12 weeks on this drug and haven't yet lost 5% of their baseline weight, it's recommended that they discontinue the medication because they're probably not going to see benefit. And that may be partly because of a lack of patient compliance with the other aspects of this weight loss regimen. And it may just be that those patients aren't going to see benefit from the drug. But I think it's one of those things that you're right. Patients kind of look at these medications as a silver bullet and they just take the pill and life is going to get better and the pounds are going to fall off. But that's not the case.
1: And thinking about the cost of the drug, it's more than $200 per month. So it's probably a good idea to consider discontinuation if it's not going to be effective. It has to be taken twice a day. It does have a renal adjustment that, in terms of dosing, should be considered. And it also has some drug interactions that we should think about. So it's a 2D6 inhibitor. That's a pathway that's used for things like uh, coding, for coding activation to convert coding to morphine. It's used for uh, beta blockers, certain beta blockers.
2: I always like to throw in the example of tamoxifen. My patients who are on tamoxifen mm-hmm. either for prevention of a primary breast cancer or for prevention of relapse of a breast cancer. They need their CYP2D6 to metabolize tamoxifen to its active metabolite. And if we're inhibiting that, my patients don't get their benefit. So I think it's important that everyone's educated about those drug interactions.
3: And actually, I'll chime in on my patient population as well. Your SSRIs, your selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, your SNRIs, with add in norepinephrine like your venlafaxine, and your antipsychotics as well, many of them are dependent upon 2D6 or at least some form of their metabolism. And so adjusting that, and again, we end up with unpredictable kinetics. Mm-hmm.
1: So then in thinking about cost, potential drug interactions, dosing, the big reason that if it's not going to work